0: Oh, I can't make any... And so welcome, welcome to the LSE
1: <laughs> for this afternoon's event, which forms part of LSE's seventh Space for Thought Literary Festival, which is taking place all this week uh, with the theme Foundations. Uh, an important strand of the festival theme has been exploring the foundations of our identity and the effects of landscape, money, roots, and displacement on how we see ourselves. Today's discussion will ask what effect our digital landscapes and our digital lives have on the foundations of our identity. I'm Sierra Williams and I'm the editor of the LSE Impact Blog, an online space to discuss how digital trends and innovations are shaping the future of scholarship and the impact of research. As such, I'm very pleased to be here to welcome our panel of speakers to the LSE today to talk about our online selves. They are each going to speak for 10 minutes or so before we enter into a more general discussion including a chance for you to put your questions to the panel. We have a reading list of material from our blog on digital identity up today, so do check that out at lseimpact.com if you're interested in reading more. Our first speaker will be Luke Dormel. Luke is a technology author and journalist with a, backu- with a background in documentary film. He regularly contributes to Fast Company, where he covers high tech and the digital humanities and also writes for the popular Apple blog, Cult of Mac. His previous books include The Apple Revolution, which explored the links between Apple and the hippie counterculture of the 60s and 70s. His latest book is The Formula, How Algorithms Solve All Our Problems and Create More. Today he will be talking about the algorithmic view of identity and personhood. Our second speaker will be Andrew Murray, who is professor in law at LSE and a fellow of the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufactures, and Commerce. He joined the LSE Law Department in September 2000. Andrew's principal research interests are in regulatory design within cyberspace, particularly the role of non-state actors, the protection of human rights within the digital environment, and the promotion of proprietary interests in the digital sphere encompassing both intellectual property rights and traditional property models. He'll be speaking about the objective self. Our third speaker, Alex Kratosky, is an academic and journalist who writes about and studies technology and interactivity. Her latest book, Untangling the Web, What the Internet is Doing to You, looks at the psychology research behind the claims about the positive and negative forces of the digital age. Alex presents BBC Radio 4's award-winning science series The Digital Human, which I can enthusiastically recommend having listened to every episode. <laughs> oh,
2: thank you.
1: She has been hosting The Guardian's Tech Weekly podcast since its inception in 2007. She will be speaking on engagement and the construction of human in the digital age. Our final speaker will be Sonia Livingston, who is professor in the Department of Media and Communications at LSE and author of Digital Technologies in the Lives of Young People. She directs the 33-country network EU Kids Online, funded by the EC's Safer Internet Program. She is now beginning a project, Preparing for a Digital Future, which follows on the recently completed project, The Class, both part of the MacArthur Foundation-funded Connected Learning Research Network. She... She will be speaking about the implications of the digital environment for children's rights. Now, before I hand over to Luke, uh, just a reminder, the Twitter hashtag for today's event is LSE Litfest, and it wouldn't be a session on digital identity without a lively Twitter back channel, so we do encourage you to, to tweet. But please put your phones on silent so as not to disrupt others. The event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. Uh, There will be a book signing taking place following the event. Copies of Luke, Alex, and Sonia's books will be on sale outside the venue. Now I'll ask Luke to start us off.
3: Thank you very much, everyone, for coming. I do appreciate you taking the time on a Saturday. Um, I'd like to start off by addressing what I see to be the main challenges of discussing this notion of digital personhood or digital identity. It should be clear to all of us that identity is an incredibly important idea on both a micro and macro level, and not just digital identity either. In politics, the self is the citizen who participates in democracy through voting and other political activities. In a market economy, the self is the optimizer of costs and benefits. In the legal system, the self is usually imagined as an agent, responsible for his or her own behaviour within society. The digital self is similarly fractured. One of the most interesting and important views of the self in the digital age was proposed by the psychoanalytical tech writer Sherry Turkle. Back in the mid-1990s, Turkle proposed the idea of thinking about the self as a series of windows that can be opened and closed as necessary, an acknowledgement of the fractured nature of identity. As Turkle cutely put it, who am we? She imagined, for instance, the CEO who runs a company during work hours, then goes home and is a mother and a wife and a daughter. All contexts are a true reflection of the self, but each provide a glimpse at a different self. Windows have become a powerful metaphor for thinking about the self as a multiple distributed system, Turkle writes. In the digital world, the windows become more literal windows that we shift between constantly. As Turkle noted, the self is no longer simply playing different roles in different settings at different times. The life practice of windows is that of a decentered self that exists in many worlds, that plays many different roles at the same time. We might, for instance, cycle through multiple apps or programs which draw on different aspects of our lives, For example, switching between texting our child, using a smartwatch to check on the health of an older relative for whom we're the carer, and replying to a work email. Real life, Turkle suggests, might be just one more window. I'm not going to go too far down that route, although I think it's interesting to consider whether our identity is now more digital than physical. What I'm instead interested in is how much has changed in the years since. If Sherry Turkle was discussing this in 1995, then what's happened in the, year that's, in the 20 years that have followed? Well, technologically, everything has changed. Although digitality, to coin a rather clumsy phrase, isn't limited to the internet, the internet is a large part of what makes us digital. And to look at the numbers reveal how far we've come. In 1995, just 0.8% of the world's population was online. That's 44 million people, roughly the population of Argentina. Today, Facebook alone has a little under 1.4 billion monthly users. And a lot of what was hypothetical when Sherry Turkle was writing in the mid-1990s is uh, now a reality to today's digital natives or people who have grown up with the Internet all around them. Our digital identities today are also far more fractured than those that Turkle was writing about, at a time when expressing yourself on a computer was limited to merely changing the background on your Mac or talking on an internet chat room. Just speaking about myself, I have an Instagram account, I have a Facebook account, a LinkedIn profile, a Twitter profile, various forum memberships, an Amazon profile, a Google profile, and plenty more, many of which I'm probably not aware of. I'm not... (laughs) I'm not an online gamer, so I don't have alter egos in the same way that you might find with someone who spends their weekends playing on World of Warcraft or as a carjacker on Grand Theft Auto. But like most people, I'm aware that each of these profiles is an alter ego to some extent or other. As with our identities in the real world, much of the time these roles are shaped and limited by seemingly invisible factors based on what the service in question is designed to achieve. Think about the way that MySpace, which allowed users to express themselves fairly freely, gave way to the more structured Facebook, which curtailed a lot of that freedom in favour of giving us an easier user interface where everyone's profiles looked the same. When you set up a profile, your identity is limited by the questions that you're asked to fill in. Most of, m- many of you have uh, read this week about Apple running into problems when it tried to create racially diverse emoji the uh, smiley faces that you send and receive with text messages. What Apple did was to provide a range of smileys related to different ethnicities for the first time. So instead of sending a generic face, you might send a white smiley or a black smiley or any sort of number of racial subcategories that best represented you. The problem came based on the fact that Apple's generic smiley was bright yellow, a bit like a generic Lego figure. Only a large number of users mistook this to being an, a, an offensive Asian stereotype, which is particularly bad at a time when Apple's doing so much to expand into China. <coughs> Part of the reason people were offended, I'd suggest, is the same reason we might be offended, to see yellow being used for skin colours. as In an old cartoon, it's hurtful and dehumanising as a parody of Asian people. But I think that part of it is the very modern trauma of being forced to reduce identity into a set number of racial emojis which are designed to sum us up as, ra- as individuals. It's this trauma that I think we're learning to deal with in the algorithmic age. Western philosophy and culture has often encouraged us to view the self or identity as something unique to different individuals. Mon- modern technology gives us new ways of defining our individuality. As a broad example, we might encapsulate all our music tastes in a Spotify playlist with our, with our name. I've pretty eclectic tastes in music, so I might have, for example, early 90s hip-hop or 1930s swing music or Malagasy folk music and whatever else and save it under the name Luke, thereby codifying my tastes in a document that you could look at and get some taste about, some idea about who I am as an, as an individual. Much the same is true of search engines like Google, which offer customised results based on past searches. If you and I enter the word Jaguar into Google, but I've got a history of looking at wildlife photographs, while you've shown a preference for cars, we'll get two very different results. The classic illustration of this is that the liberal who searches BP will get information on the infamous oil spill, well, the conservative will get investment advice. <laughs> Neither of these are necessarily wrong, in that both exist, but the results are tailored in a way that sort of flatters us as individuals. In fact, just as a side note, there's a fantastic uh, startup, and by fantastic I mean somewhat unnerving that's a a company which claims to be able to analyse your Twitter account to look at syntax and sentence structure and topics of uh, interest to you and then uh, continue to post on your account after you die. And I I, I literally only mentioned it to bring up the amazing tagline, which is, uh, when your heart stops beating, you'll keep tweeting. (laughs) (laughs) We also have... um, Self-tracking fitness devices, which can be used to track the number of steps we make each day or the quality of our sleep or our blood sugar levels, the number of cups of coffee that we consume each day or how many times we have sex, all these things that we're now able to measure and quantify. What we're seeing now is the rise of services also, which can sift through that mass aggregative or, or that, that aggregated mass of data and discern patterns. So, for example, how does the amount of coffee that you drink affect the amount of sleep that you get? And in turn, how does that influence the amount of exercise that you get the next day? All of these become a new way of us imprinting our identity in the digital age. So what's the problem? Well, there's not necessarily one, but there are a few interesting observations that we can make. Firstly, returning to the trauma of the smiley faces is this trauma that we're not necessarily unique and that we're learning this painfully in an age of mass aggregated information. Go on any dating site and start looking through the profiles and you'll quickly realize how quickly they blur into one another as the phrases we use to differentiate ourselves become monotonous. Labels like cute and fun-loving and adventurous and so on strike to break the formulaic mould of uniformity but end up drawing on the same cultural scripts of desirable characteristics nonetheless. The second problem, and this really is the central paradox of identity in the digital age, is that identity is both freedom of expression and also a way to market at you, or market to you, There are companies which claim that they can predict your response to a variety of questions based on knowing just five things about you. There are also companies which are responsible for routing algorithms for call centres capable of ascertaining what personality type you have based on the way that you speak and the words that you use. With that information, it can then put you through to a person best able to deal with that personality type for a higher successful call resolution rate. There are also companies which produce entertainment cynically targeted towards uh, certain demographics with a surgical precision that was unimaginable in an earlier age. Many of you will be familiar with House of Cards, the Netflix series starring Kevin Spacey, which is actually a remake of an older BBC series. House of Cards is one of the first hit shows based on algorithmic identification. What Netflix executives did was to look through their databases, identify a type of user that they were looking to target, look at which shows they enjoyed, and uh, found out that they enjoyed political thrillers. From there, it was then a matter of finding out which directors they also liked, which turned out to be David Fincher, the director of Fight Club and The Social Network, as well as the actors they enjoyed watching, which included Kevin Spacey. With all of that knowledge, they then ordered an unprecedented number of episodes of the show without ever seeing a single scene. So confident were they of the results of their data analysis. In all, their investment was a not inconsequential $100 million, but the show was unsurprisingly a hit with its target audience, and it wound up being nominated for several awards, again voted for by people with presumably similar personality types. It took rival TV network HBO 25 years to get its first Emmy nomination, said one American TV critic. It took Netflix six months. As you can see, identity is big business in the age of the algorithm. Which brings me back to Sherry Turkle's ideas about windows and windowing, and one of the key differences between identity in years previous and identity today. One of the companies that I write about in my book, uh, The Formula, is a recruitment company called Guild, which takes as its premise the idea that the classic way of finding jobs for people is discriminatory or inaccurate, which for people working in Silicon Valley may be even worse, in terms of finding people who will be a good fit for a role. Consider the classic job interview, for for instance. You may be having a bad day. And as a result, you may miss out on a fantastic opportunity, as with the company that you're applying to 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 recruit you. Guild's idea instead is to analyse every every shred of a person's online imprint, everything from semantic and sentiment analysis of Twitter feeds to the history of uh, web searches to possibly even the images that they put up on Facebook and use all of this as a way of gauging suitability for a particular role. As such, it's a tool for democratizing employment, but also a sign of what happens to identity here in 2015. Where previously, identity was a series of windows we could open and close depending on context, in the modern algorithmic age, these windows constantly crash into one another. Where the way that you behave at home might be used as a predictor of how you'll behave in the office, or the fitness data that you use to express yourself as an individual is used to unknowingly build a legal case against you. Identity is a lot of things here in the digital age. It's big business, it's constantly customizable, it exists in a state of flux, which means that more than ever, identity doesn't stay stationary for very long. And it's all also no longer ours. Thank you very much.
4: Good afternoon everyone. Um, you may have noticed at the start there was a little bit of talk. Afterwards you can buy Luke's book, you can buy Sonia's book, you can buy Alex'. You'll notice that nobody was offering to sell my book. <laughs> <coughs> Which is a bit of a problem at a literary festival. It's because my book doesn't exist yet. But um, by next year hopefully you will be able to buy it. So this is, this is the first piece of advertising. In essence, Working on what Luke's just said there, I've picked you as the potential audience that will buy this when it comes out. <laughs> Make a note for 2016, the objective self. Um, right, I think partly the reason I, I did this event last year, and I think partly that he's now been invited back, is that I'm the sort of comic relief, I'm the fun guy in between the serious bits. And last year I did a, a bit where I dressed up. This year I'm going to have a quiz. So, um, the first thing is a simple question for you all. See if anybody can get this. So, who won the 2014 Eurovision Song Contest? Conchita Verst Verst won the the 2014 Eurovision Song Contest. And you got that simply because you worked with the information that's in your brain. Now, here's another question. If you want this time, and you're connected to the network, uh, because I know getting a signal in here is really bad. If you want, you can use your smartphones to answer this one. Mm Um, who won the 1972 Eurovision Song Contest? I wondered if somebody was going to shout out was the answer straight away. <laughs> it was It, ABBA? ABBA? it wasn't ABBA. ABBA. No, it was 1974, I think. Who the ones uh, did the... See, people Bux are Fizz. busily Bux searching. Fizz? Fizz? No, well, Buxfids
5: were 81. I don't oh, know. I am can't decade that.
4: It wasn't? No. People are using their smartphones. I'll, I'll put people out of misery if they're not going to get there. It's one of these ones you've never heard of, but the good thing is people are using their smartphones. It was a woman called Vicky Leandros, who was representing... She's Greek, but was representing Luxembourg, in the song's called Après Toi." And the 1972 Eurovision Song Contest was held in Edinburgh 23 days after I was born. So now you can work out how old I am. <laughs> <coughs> and where I'm from. Um, <laughs> the important point about that there is that people did reach for their smartphones, and so the first thing I want to talk about is this idea of assisted decision-making. So I can get this to come out. So it's this kind of thing. So I hear someone's about to have a baby. This
6: is big news and I'd love to help. I can check traffic
3: and find the best way to the hospital. Can't have Dad getting stressed. When a new baby name comes to mind, I can take notes. And I can set up a reminder to pick up nappies on the way home. As for changing nappies...
4: Maybe on my next upgrade. In some ways, I was disappointed that nobody picked up their smartphone and just went, Siri, who won the 1972 <laughs> year song like Um Because that's, you know, how people work today. Now, I'm calling that assisted decision-making. Um, this is what we already do. We do it all the time. It's ordering of information by our electronic devices. This doesn't make any difference to us as people. Assisted decision making is what humans have always done. We've put information into books, we've put books into libraries, we've catalogued libraries, we've put things into filing systems, and now we use computers to help us do it more efficiently. The important thing about assisted decision making is the final decision is ours. All the computer does is help us get to that decision. But we're actually moving on away from assisted decision making into other types. The first I call supplementary decision-making, and this little ad gives a little bit of it. This is the iPhone 6. And this is the
7: iPhone 6 Plus. They come with a thing called health, so they can help you track a lot of stuff. Like today I walked 3.8 miles. Well, I ran 4.2 miles. Well, I climbed 11 flights of stairs. (laughs) Well, I drank a smoothie that had 362 calories in it. Well, I had a funnel cake that had 1230 calories in
3: it. You know that's not good, right?
7: It was good. It was delicious.
4: You see, you can always make sure that people will laugh in an audience by playing them an Apple advert. Um, Supplementary decision-making is slightly different to assisted decision-making. It's kind of decision-making that has a value built into it. Rather than just giving us information and saying, do with it what you will, the information comes with a value judgment in it. So these health apps have particular values built into them in what they tell us to do, to have a certain number of steps, to eat a certain way, to do a certain amount of exercise. So now we're slightly being lectured by the technology. Our decision-making is slightly different. It's not completely ours. We are still in control. And so at this stage, I'm not too worried about us losing control of our own decision-making. But the next stage is where we do start to lose control, and that's autonomous decision making. And that's very near or around the corner. No more videos, I'm afraid. That's the video's done. And that's very near or around the corner. The most famous is autonomous cars. Um, these are some military vehicles. But also, of course, Google are famously working on theirs. These are very different to traditional robots or systems like industrial robots or simple um, electronic ordering of information. Now what we're doing is we're requiring these systems to make decisions for us and to learn how to make decisions from us. And there are a number of these systems either in development or even in use. They respond to stimuli and then they take over our decision-making process for us. This is what I call the objective self. We stop being the subjective person making our own decisions, and we give control of decision-making to someone else. In this case, it's a robot. So a really good example of this from the real world, I don't know if you've heard of this, is something called Tinderbox. Tinderbox is an algorithmic bot which will automatically select Tinder matches for you. (laughs) The bot uses eigenfaces algorithms to learn the facial structure of potential matches. It learns this from as few as 60 real-world swipes that you do on Tinder to teach the system your preferences. Once it does this, it will automatically swipe right or left to select your potential matches based on your preferences. It's not dumb. It just doesn't swipe right to everything. It selects. So what I'm thinking about is if we're now allowing a bot to select, and more importantly to deselect, to remove from our options, people we might want, um, our potential love matches based on facial profiling, what is the long-term future for us as subjective decision-makers? As a human race, are we going to give up much of our decision-making to these bots? So as we move from assisted through supplementary and then finally to autonomous decision-making bots, we lose control of vital aspects of the decision-making process. In so doing, we externalise decision-making and move from subjective control over decision-making to objective decision-making, the objective self. So, In so doing this, we move away from the classic image of the subjective decision-maker, Rodin's ponceur or thinker, to decisions driven by algorithms... It's be thought of as the final reduction of informational data to binary code. Over the years, we've reduced music, photographs, video, art, design and architecture and getting a job to binary code. Now we're actually reducing humanity to binary. The final element of informational binary code is to reduce humanity to a binary decision-making process. So what's happening is we're moving to a world where the objective self is becoming more important and valuable. And that's partly, I think, what Luke's book is all about. That's a lot what Luke's book is all about. Externalised decisions are somehow seen as more accurate, more precise, and less variable than internalised or subjective decisions. Thus, computerization from the 1980s onwards has led to a computer-says-no environment. When we apply for a mortgage loan or benefit, it's the computer programme, not the person that owns the decision. This is the reason why, according to a recent study, 42% of people taking part admitted they are more likely to type their symptoms into Google rather than visiting their doctor. 27% relied entirely on Google for their diagnosis. This is despite the fact that in less than half of the cases, in fact 42%, they had self-diagnosed themselves correctly, with the remaining 58% having over-exaggerated their illness. (laughs) We believe that machines are more accurate than fallible humans, but would we trust a doctor who got it wrong four times who got it right four times in ten? This is the big data algorithmic religion that we're now flocking to. We trust data and computers to give us answers in the way we trusted religion four hundred years ago and science one hundred years ago. This could be temporary, or it could signal a move in society from self determination to machine or bot determination, the so called objective self. Of course, we need to be clear about what we're giving up here. We're freely giving up that little bit of our personality and self-determination and, importantly, our autonomy to the providers of bots and intelligent agents. A number of these will be purveyors of online algorithmic solutions, so software companies. But today, as much as anything, a lot of them are actually built into our devices and into our, in future, clothes. So we have intelligent systems in cars, in training shoes, that are all making little subtle changes to the way we behave. They're not making decisions for us yet. We're not at that point yet. But they are making little nudges in the direction we move. So we're ceding that little bit of us to all of these companies, who, as Luke has already pointed out, are using this to then sell us products and to otherwise categorise us. So what can we do about it? Well, to regain control firstly requires us to acknowledge there is a problem and the scope of that problem. The first step to getting help is admitting that you have a problem. (laughs) Next, we have to discuss our contribution to this. Luke is a journalist, so his job is to publicise the threat, which he's already doing very nicely. Uh, Sonia Livingston, who you will hear later on, she is a social psychologist... And her job is to evaluate the risks and the way we communicate, experience, and compromise our new environment. Alex Kratotsky, who you will hear after me, is also a social psychologist and a journalist. So actually, with her, we don't need Luke or Sonia any longer. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Make me into a pot. <laughs> uh, no, I, as you heard, I'm a lawyer. Um, so I see three things that lawyers need to address. The first is our changing nature of relationship with personal privacy. The church of big data makes decisions about us based on disparate and minuscule pieces of information. Today, adverts are placed to us on the basis of which web pages we visit and who our online friends are. In future, it might be important decisions about whether or not we receive expensive medical treatment or whether to allow us to enter or leave a country, and these may be based not on our own direct actions but upon the ripples of data that we leave behind as we move through the merged online-offline world. Thus, regularly buying a McDonald's or taking the bus rather than walking may lead to NHS refusing us cancer treatment as we've um, refused to follow government diet and exercise advice. But what about incomplete data? I took the bus because I had a sore foot and I bought McDonald's because my six-year-old is going through a fatty food phase. Lawyers have a role to play in ensuring digital judges judge us fairly by ensuring data is up-to-date, accurate and not kept longer than is necessary. Revision of digital privacy is, I think, required. Secondly, we lawyers must ensure that the law protects our personality and outputs. We must ensure that the true us is represented to the world, not an avatar of us made up by the actions and activities carried out in our name by our intelligent agents. Finally, we must ensure that our liberty and autonomy is protected. As others start to see us as externalised data, it's important that the law as much as possible seeks to ensure that our personality is visible and protected at all times and that we as individuals have enough information and data to exercise our autonomy. Now, doing nothing is unfortunately not an option. Um, Already a number of semi-autonomous agents exist. I already told you about the, the one that would select your dates for you. Others include the Name Tag app that allows you to upload a picture of someone to their servers, which will then run facial recognition against photographs from social media, dating sites and where available government databases, such as the National Sex Offenders Register and any other criminal databases, and then return to your phone or wearable any link to the publicly available data on that person. The idea is to allow people to connect using their face as their name tag. NameTag currently will only profile those who join NameTag but it's easy to imagine less scrupulous users of that technology. IntelliDiet will calculate your daily diet and prescribe food to you, uh, food for you to eat, sorry, on the basis of your diet preferences and life goals. It assembles your diet into 3 meals and 2 snacks per day. Perhaps the scariest of the lot is Intelligent Medical Home. They're developing a remote care monitoring and health delivery system, such as monitoring smart TVs, which will monitor your key health indicators, and a system of cameras and smart packets, which will ensure you've taken your tablets as prescribed. Even routine technologies, such as sat-navs uh, built by TomTom, have inbuilt what they call IQ routes, which in real time calculate the quickest route to your destination. We risk becoming infantilized by all this system, we're giving up our decision-making to these devices for us and saying, treat me like a small child. Tell me what I need to eat. Tell me where I need to go. Tell me what I need to do. It's only a matter of time until we ask it to come and wipe our bottom for us. The risk in doing this is that by infantilising ourselves, every time we don't challenge the objective or smart technology, we become less in control of our self-determination and we become more susceptible to incomplete or inaccurate information. The best example of that is the amount of newspapers that published an obituary of Ronnie Hazelhurst, the the composer, that said he wrote Reach for the Stars for S Club 7 when he died in 2008. The reason that they all published this? It said so in Wikipedia. And the first thing I always tell my students is if you ever cite to me Wikipedia as a source in an essay, I fail you instantly, (laughs) because it is not a source. So... Where does this leave us? Well, I'm going to leave you with a thought about how the future might change. One thing is to allow the devices to make decisions for us, and we can be part of some wonderful collective, Um, and in so doing, we maybe feel a greater connection to the other people around us, but we lose a little bit of our personality and individuality. The idea of the Borg, of course, with their electronics built into them, is just so crazy, you couldn't imagine people doing that in the real world. Uh, Um, but there's another future. There's a future where we use the technology to do amazing things. And we do that already. I mean, I love Kindles. They're great. Um, They allow me to take a book anywhere I want, and I'm in control of it. And that's the key message for this, I think. And this is what the book is ultimately going to be about once it's all written. It's very important for us to retain our personality and it's important, I think, for us to remain the objective self, sorry, the subjective self, rather than giving up and becoming the objective self. Okay, thank you.
5: Well, we've tackled a couple of... Oh, God, sorry. <laughs> Just totally maxed out the Zoom here, so apologies for podcast listeners where I've just slapped you upside the head with a they can edit paper. it. Um, <laughs> I'm really pleased that we've spoken about two things already that I think are fascinating in this debate. Um, the first is this idea about um, windows of the self, the multiplicity of identity, um, and. Touching on that, this, this idea between the online identity, which I'll discuss in a second, and the digital identity, which is a slightly different beast, um, and also this brilliant techno-fundamentalism, that I, this infantilism. I love that. I love this sort of this dystopian future in which we all just sort of say, oh, hail Google, um, which is something that I might talk about. Who knows? Um, now, however, being the techno-fundamentalist that I am,
4: I need to figure out how. Oh, I do. Look yeah, at that. I Sorry, I
5: mean, yeah. it's more complicated than. I use a Mac. There we go. <laughs> there we go. So I've become, no, it's fine, I've become fundamentalized into, uh, into Macintosh land as a total aside. So I realized this several years ago, this is totally an aside. Um, I realized several years ago, I, I, I bought a Sony Bio. At, at an airport I was like right I need a laptop I'll buy this thing and they said you've got three months to send it back if you don't want it no questions ab- fab so I played around with it and I got really annoyed with how much I needed to like it literally it, it put me into a walled garden I had to use only Sony appliances I had to use you know Sony accredited software and I sent it back Finally, I was like no this is ridiculous I refuse to have this And about two months later, I realized that I was in my house and I had an iPhone, a Mac, an iMac, and I was like, oh, what have I done? Anyway, that, like I said, a total aside. I thought it was an interesting thing. So I'm also the light relief. You thought you were the light relief. Um, Over the next few minutes, and I'll try and keep it relatively short, um, I want to explore this idea of the simulacra of this representation, this reduction of humanity into the online world with a few examples of things that simply delight me, um, because I'm curious and have been curious for the last few years about what human is in the digital age. Um, it's all kinds of things, and I mentioned before this distinction between online identity and digital identity. We'll talk about that in a second. We've spoken quite a lot about online dating. I may bring that up as well in just a second to, to, to highlight that. But really what I want to focus on, the first, the first part of this presentation, is... Um, this thing that I called there are five I've got uh, one of one of the many tumblers that I run is something called there are five uh, and the reason is is because I started to get really frustrated with how um, with how technology companies were simply trying to replicate my human experience the, the ways that I engage in the online space it was inspired by um, a, a course that I was running at the uh, a, a University of Oxford at the Oxford Internet Institute and um, talking about, you know, ways of engaging people in the digital age, and I was like, I've talked about that. You know, you can have a Twitter feed, you can have a Facebook, you can do all these things, but actually let's explode this out a second. Let's have a look and speak with people who, by their very industries, are desperately trying to engage people, but in a very physical way. And Try and understand how it is that they engage people in very physical ways, so that as... Developers of technology, we can use those lessons, and I call them analog lessons from masters of the senses. And it's been a brilliant, total personal project. Um, I've had such a good time interviewing roller coaster designers about anticipation, and you know, people who are timekeepers about our sense of time and all that kind of thing. But um, I've also interviewed people about. Um, about the way that we hear things, about the ways that we see things, and also about the ways that we touch things or the ways that we smell things, the ways that we, think, the ways that we taste things as well. It's been an absolutely delightful project. And in that, in that experience of trying to understand people's engagement, their, their sort of human transference, those elements that the digital technologies cannot at present capture and reduce, I found some brilliant examples of ways that people have tried to capture and reduce our digital selves. So I just want to very quickly go through a couple of them, um, because I'm very curious what you think, whether you think that we... Um, that this is something that we wish for in our world, and if in fact they've got it right. Here and see are two senses that I think that the uh, that web technologies, digital technologies have got down pretty well. Right, it's a very visual environment, and we can also hear through it. They're pretty straightforward. But let's go with touch. Can I do this? Can I do this? Technology is hard, people, especially if you're not used to this. Whoa! This particular kind of operating system. All right, and we're going to go over to oh, in fact, and you were awesome you loaded them all up for me, didn't you? Help. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Okay, fantastic. So um, I've covered some of this in oh, wow, this is Schnazzy. I've covered some of this in um... oh heck. I should have done this before, in, uh, in one of the uh, radio programs that we did for the digital human on engagement. But this is one of my, my favorite examples.
6: I'm on a mission for Mazda to meet real challenges. <laughs> People who've made a big impact by doing things different. Skip ass! Please <laughs> the message after the Hi. No. Call us Come up.
5: of haptic technologies in which basically through the through the networks, Communication thing that we experience almost every single day. Um, we can reach out and almost literally touch someone. That's um, Joanna Montgomery uh, did this as a as a final year project uh, because her partner was living on the rigs, the oil rigs, and so they very rarely saw one another. And what you didn't kind of get from that experience is that not only does it light up to let you know that the person has laid down and is falling asleep on on the pillow, but also that heartbeat that you had at the end is the heartbeat of you, know, you saw the rain that's actually the heartbeat of their partner that's sort of pumped through it's not exactly pumped but you know it's sort of it's, it's, it's thud thuds um, on the other person's pillow and I just love that sort of that sense of touch that sense of connectivity other haptic technologies there's one that um, I remember hearing about years ago that I have not been able to track down since promise you it existed it wasn't just in my brain um, but things where you using a smartphone you get um, sensations of people kissing or stroking faces as well, so we're starting to see really <coughs> beautiful, fascinating um, aspects of this particular sense. But let's go. Let's go back to the slightly more surreal, <laughs> because that's quite fun. So that's touch, and I think you know, with with a little bit of tweaking, um, there's a huge touch industry out there for you know for whatever you, you want to use it for. There's a huge touch industry that's out there um, really exploring these haptic technologies. But increasingly, like the schlock film directors of the 1950s, um, we have other senses that people are trying to use to engage our sense of self, our humanity, inside this um, very uh, technological, cold environment. So we've done Pillow Talk. Um, this, is a, this is something called a digital... Lollipop, which I think is utterly fascinating. Um.
6: What if internet was a matter of taste? Nimisha Ranasinghe, a researcher from Sri Lanka, thinks it should be. He thought it was a pity that like taste and smell weren't part of the digital world. That's how he came up with the digital lollipop, a revolutionary invention that simulates taste. It works through electrodes that are linked to a computer and transmit minute variations in temperature and electric current. The taste buds instantly translate those stimuli into sweet, salt, bitter, or sour sensations, the four basic tastes. It's quite an achievement, especially as we still don't know exactly how taste mechanisms work. Oh, Nimisha's well. digital lollipop it could help us overcome a sudden <laughs> urge for sugar. And with his team, he's looking at how to transmit more subtle flavors. One day, we could enjoy what the chef has just
5: made in our favorite cooking show. Isn't that brilliant? I love that. Absolutely love it. It's so Futuristic and cyborg, and you know, literally sticking electrodes to our <laughs> tongues. And I'll show you it being used in just a second in quite an amusing way. Um, that's delightful. And actually, the inspiration for me for looking up the digital lollipop was um, I had an amazing opportunity. Having spoken to of all people, it was the most brilliant conference I've ever spoken at. It was a room full of roller coaster and amusement park designers. It was so cool. And I came in, there like, what can we do about digital technology in our amusement parks? And I was like, why? Why do you want to use digital technologies to engage and immerse people? You already do it really, 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 really well. Um, and I was invited afterwards to speak with a group of people who are at the University of Reading. They're, they're not actually part of the food sciences group. They're a private company. And they're called a taste computer. And what this taste computer does is there's a panel here, there's a panel in New Jersey, and there's a panel in, I believe, Singapore. And I think they're opening up one in Shanghai very soon. And it's, a, it's literally, it's like a jury. It's 12 people sitting around a table with, you know, tomatoes or um, chocolate biscuits or whatever. And they are amongst themselves reducing the experience of taste, this phenomenological experience of taste, into things that they can tick off. Now, obviously, this, you know, this, this tomato tastes meaty. It tastes, um, it tastes green, but in a savory sense, not in a, a light and airy sense. So they're actually using words to reduce all of our, our, um, our taste sensations. And as was mentioned in that particular video, scientists have no idea how tastes happen. So, hey, let's just, throw, let's do, let's just try, right? <laughs> Maybe the technologists can figure it out for us, right? So the next thing that I want to talk about, the next one that I want to show... Um, is this is brilliant. I love this. Honestly, I get so excited about this stuff, it's hilarious. Um, This is just one of my favorite things ever. Food
7: is inseparable from the history of mankind. And now, 2013. Introducing a whole new approach to food. Tasting and savoring food with your nose. How to one, choose, two, insert, three, smell, four, eat. And that's all there is to it. So, are we ready to savor this? Let's say you're a student with no money. All you need is some white rice, and your stomach will feel satisfied. Let's say you're a woman on a diet. Obviously, calories are not an issue when you're dining at Anayakaniko. Let's say there's a couple going out on a date.
5: So that's called Senti, and it is available. Um, others, other, others that I have not been able to get a hold of is Oscar Mayer um, released a, a, a bacon-smelling app I have, I have actually tried to get a hold of it and they've said, it was just a prototype. And I'm like, yeah, come on, show me. I want to actually smell this thing, but they've, they've refused to give it to me. So um, perhaps because I'll bring it to places like this and say, they couldn't possibly do such things. Um, finally, uh, what I want to do is just show you those last two that are in situ, because obviously they're... they're they're, you know, those are, those are promo videos, so you have no idea. It sounds to me like they have actually managed to, to reduce humanity into something that squirts the smell of beef tongue and, you know, something that, that you stick in your a, a digital lollipop that can, that can taste these things. But let's, for example, let's just try these two. So this is a lovely vid from the Gadget Man from Channel 4.
6: While our main courses are extruded, there's just time for an amuse-bouche. This is going to simulate a taste. You just have to put your tongue in here. (laughs) electronically simulated taste, because you know it's very tedious getting taste from food. The digital lollipop has two silver probes, which attach to the tongue to simulate sweet and sour taste receptors. That's sour. And then what we will do? Yeah,
2: two sour. It is (laughs) pretty sour.
6: Now this is going to release an aroma, which coupled with this, is going to just take our I tell you, no, this, off. this is a,
3: a dieter's dream. It
6: sure beats eating. Yeah. <laughs> this, I have to say, I rather like. You like. This the is like. actually rather tasting lemon. Ah. And what were you getting from this? Toilet duck. <laughs> I'm,
2: I'm
6: still hungry. Well, that's what thin air will do to you. Yeah. Now, the man.
5: <laughs> so there you go. Um, delightful things, delightful ways in which people are trying to get us to um, basically delightful ways in which people are trying to um, reduce our humanity, create a simulacrum of, of our humanity in the digital environment. Um, there are, of course, others. Oh gosh, that's not what I wanted. There we go. Yes, using using technology is fun. Um, there are, of course, other aspects of no. Those are great fun, right? They're really fascinating and it is super, super interesting to try and reduce those aspects, but you know my dog Edwin can also taste and smell and hear what are those aspects of of us that technology is attempting um, to to create, and in fact we've heard a couple of examples already um, from the two previous speakers. One of the, when I was doing the research for the book, uh, Untangling the Web, I had an amazing opportunity to look through a huge variety of different themes uh, and look at a, a vast array of the psychology research about what, was, what is different now to our lives after the web and internet technology has, has arrived. And, you know, from before. There's a huge raft of psychology research that stretches back to the late 1800s, all the way to now. And uh, internet research really only started in the psychology field. The earliest that I could ever find, and Sonia, perhaps you can, you can sort of keep me, you can steer me straight, is 1985, looking at group dynamics. a study on group dynamics. Um, and then all the way up to here. So that's not a huge amount of time uh, in terms of In terms of what we understand psychologically about the web, but in that body of work there 's a, a vast array of different topics that are that are tackled, including things like our identities, including things like how we do death and life, including things like how we look for love um, and how we see god there 's a whole bunch of, of psychological research that is still analyzing those aspects post the web, and what I found really interesting is that there is very, very little different about our psychological experiences of these things from before to after. There's only two areas that I found that, that seem to be currently under negotiation, and one of which is discovery. And discovery is kind of it's typified now by Google, but I mentioned online dating because online dating is another type of discovery. And you know your, your, your Tinder bot, which I think sounds absolutely hilarious, is a good example of an algorithm, which you were speaking about, uh, of an algorithm that basically helps to identify um, what the, the technology believes will be a good match for us. Somebody described online dating to me in my research. Um, as having five cereal boxes delivered to your door and you just, you just decide which one you want and then you can send the rest of them back. And that, that aspect of search and discovery for that particular element, so for, for online love, is something that seems to have evolved and something that we are es- essentially prone to because we don't know the algorithms, we don't know the decision-making by the technologists about how and why those five cereal boxes have arrived at our door. Similarly, Google. Google's a kind of canonical example. The other element that I found that was particularly interesting is is related to connection and specifically related to identity. I have a a bit of a a drum that I beat regularly about the, the fact that privacy, our concept of privacy is actually identical to what it used to be. It's just we practice it in different ways. It is more closely related to identity, because ultimately, privacy, as Dana Boyd has, has defined it, is when you, put your, when you put information into a source that you trust that ends up somewhere else, somewhere that you didn't expect that information to end up, and that's when you have your breach of privacy. At present, we put our trusted information into technologies that we frankly have absolutely no business putting our trust into. Why should we expect a social network like Facebook to keep it to itself, when, as we've heard already, um, their primary uh, their primary focus, their primary primary intention is to make cold hard cash. And so, sure, our photos are going to end up elsewhere. Sure, our identity markers are going to end up elsewhere. But this particular aspect of connection, this particular aspect of identity and privacy that I think has evolved and that we are still negotiating, is the permanence of identity. It's it's this. It's the, the inability for the identity to fade away or to disappear altogether. It's a very hot topic, of course, with things like the right to be forgotten or the right to be delisted, which are, which are sort of in the headlines at the moment. But it's this aspect that if you stick my name into Google, what you're gonna find is a whole bunch of stuff that represents me throughout a very long period of time. But what you're going to think, as somebody who doesn't know me, that that is exactly who I am right then and there. You're not gonna think about the context in which that information was posted, whether it's from myself or whether it's from other people. You're just gonna say, brilliant, that's what I need. That's the Wikipedia entry. That's therefore why uh, S Club 7, the song, was was posted by, by, by this person, who the composer, who did not actually create it. So that aspect of connection. For both of those elements, for search, and for, for search and discovery and connection, rather than applying a digital technology solution to these things, which we, we have seen through the taste and the smell apps, they don't quite get it in the touch, they don't quite get it right completely because they are not able to make that subjective um, decision about what should or should not uh, be included. We should actually have conversations amongst ourselves as human beings about what it is that we wish to have up or we wish to represent ourselves. A good example is, of course, the, uh, is the recruiter who uh, looks at your CV and then goes and Googles you and discovers that you, you know, 10 years ago, though perhaps she or he doesn't realize this, but, you know, there's photographs of you vomiting profusely at a pub that your mate <laughs> thought would be a hilarious thing to. I saw this on a plane once and I just thought, are you actually going to post those about your mate? But anyway, they did post that about, and, and there you go, 10 years later, you're deemed. Inappropriate for that position, even though that was you at a particular period in time. I'm rounding up here because I recognize my earlier comedy... um, comedy tropes um, took a bit longer than I had hoped because I don't know how to use technology, clearly. But I want to briefly talk about the distinction between digital and online identity, which is which is something I mentioned at the at the outset. And I'll summarize thus. Digital identity answers the question, are we sure that X is Y? It's very much the feature that is used behind the scenes to develop these algorithms, that is used to develop the sense of who we are for the companies. It's the, the boxes that you fill in on Facebook about your relationship status. Um, it's, the, it's your search history that you have on Google. Is this person actually who they say they are? It's the password that you use to get into your bank, right? Online identity is something that's slightly different, and I think that this distinction is very important because what we have here is a namespace collision. Two different industries using uh, the same term for uh, something that is, in fact, very different. The the digital identity is part of the computer science development community. The online identity is part of our experience. And I recognize this as a psychologist. We think of I, Y, consists of A, B, and C. There are aspects of me that are not X or Y. There are aspects of me that are completely separate. And those things are not able to be captured by the technology. Um, Ultimately, it is a question of agency because behind the scenes we don't actually know who it is that's creating these decisions about um, what should be captured in our Facebook identities and therefore what should be sold or um, what particular elements of our of our tinder um, decision making should actually be fed back to us and that's something that we need to have conversations about as human beings rather than slapping uh, a digital solution onto that. The study of identity, as you can read here, in a digital age is actually a philosophical pursuit. It doesn't actually have to do with identifying a password and a username. It is I. Who is I in this digital space? Is it the fact that, you know, we can cuddle up with our loved one and feel close to them because of a ring that we wear on our finger and something that we stick into our pillow or a device that we stick on our tongue? All of the people who are involved in the construction of this I, from myself, who is the actor, who is the subjective self, and those corporations who occupy the online space, who are actually trying to reduce us to create these simulcre, we have to work together, rather, if we don't, than the self. The the identification of I will not actually be accurately represented online and we ourselves offline will feel cheated. uh, And it, it ultimately is for the benefit of all. Thank you very much.
0: Well, I hope you also have a little bit of energy, um, and I fear I don't have a joke for you. Because I have to say, reading Luke's book, which was the kind of provocation for this panel, was something of a depressing um, exercise. Not because there was anything wrong with the book, but because it's a pretty dystopian book. And it's one of a number of books that um, are uh, predicting a rather depressing uh, future in which uh, the formula, as Luke calls it, or the circle, as Dave Eggers calls it, um, or the filter bubble, or whatever you know, these dystopian visions are of how our um, our lives are being taken over, our identities um, are becoming controlled by others, uh, and uh, the world as we know it is about to change. And I think the um, I've been trying to think um, longer than in preparing for this panel about what kind of ways we can respond to this and how we should be thinking about this sense of precipitous change beyond our control. Uh, And I think the starting point for my comments is to really question the sense that uh, before the digital age, before perhaps uh, going back to the uh, mid-90s or mid-80s, as the previous panellists thought, before that we had, as it were, a singular, autonomous, free, (laughs) accurate self somehow under our control. Uh, We didn't. And so we might ask ourselves in reading this dystopian Uh, visions, what exactly it is that we think we are losing, uh, and exactly what it is that we fear, given that, after all, um, we as a society, and there's been a lot of we so far, which is quite itself problematic, we as a society have created this technology, have shaped it as um, uh, we perhaps thought it might suit us, and now we are struggling with the sense that it is taking over. So um, I don't have any answers for you, and uh, I don't certainly don't have any predictions. As a social scientist, I was trained, in fact, never to attempt predictions. Social science is littered with failed predictions, and here we are trying to predict the consequences of technology that is barely a few decades old. So I thought I'd look back a little and think about the self, the identity. Uh, that is the kind of heart of what it is that we are worrying about that we feel is threatened, whose autonomy is somehow being taken away from us. And um, I, I, I won't give you the history of social science writings about identity uh, except to say in brief, social scientists for 100 years or more have not been thinking of identity as something that is autonomous simply located within uh, each individual material body um, and uh, Entirely uh, lived under the control of that individual. So there are a whole set of places we can look uh, to kind of question and destabilize uh, any assumption of an essentialist conception of self. So some will remember in this audience the 60s and 70s where the politics of identity and contestations over identity in terms of uh, gender, ethnicity, or class were strong, disruptive, and um, on the one hand exciting and for many very scary. It's not when Facebook starts to wonder whether it should provide two genders or perhaps 70 genders, as I'm told it now does, or whether when people invent emojis with different kinds of ethnicity that we begin to destabilise gender or ethnicity. We have been destabilising gender, ethnicity, class and many other kinds of identity for decades so I thought I'd go back to one of the kind of early theorists of um, identity, George Herbert Mead, who wrote round about 100 years ago and thought about the, the, the self already in terms of what he called the I and the me, both of which were social, both of which were contextual, and existed in a dynamic form, not self as windows or self as materialized or dematerialized, not self as, as it were, objective or subjective, The self as something that is dynamically produced, indeed co-produced, through our social interactions with others. So Mead said, what the individual is for himself, we'll forgive him his uh, gendering there, what the individual is for himself is not something he invented, it is what his significant others have come to treat him as being that's the me. It exists in dynamic uh, tension with I. I is the response of the individual to the me, to the attitude of that community. What do we have? We have a kind of dynamism, a creative construction between the me disciplining, containing, shaping the I, the I moving in uh, dynamic and often unpredictable counter directions. We could see that me and I and that tension and that kind of socio-cultural shaping now as absolutely including the digital. And the community that is shaping us and that we are part of and we also shape is indeed partly, increasingly perhaps, online, Uh, perhaps also managed by algorithms uh, that we don't have control over. But that's not to say we used to have control over our communities that we, nor to say that we used to have control over those shaping processes that managed us, think back to the 60s and 70s when we were very tightly controlled according to our age, our ethnicity, our social class where we lived, how we spoke the possibilities, those were not free times, they certainly weren't free if you go back a further 100 years or I suggest at any point in human history I don't know where the notion of the person I could be to freely express myself ever existed. So we've always had different kinds of tensions between I and me, between self and society, between uh, social and competing conceptions of who we are and who we might be. And now we have the digital kind of entering into that. Yes, in ways beyond our control often, but also in ways that we create So I'm kind of intrigued, and there would be lots of ways in which one could look at how conceptions of the self um, and the individual self especially have emerged over time. But we have to acknowledge that there is a kind of tension between the outrage that I feel on reading Luke's book, the outrage I feel on reading The Circle, on feeling that the digital is taking control and taking something away, and the sense that I never had it in the first place. And I don't have an answer to reconciling that. But I'm intrigued at the outrage that somehow we have all come to conceive, we, we in the West, in the democratic, privileged um, um, world, perhaps have come to conceive of ourselves as individuals with autonomous, self-determining rights over our privacy, over our information in a way that I suggest um, we probably never did have uh, and are now indeed outsourcing to the digital in ways we don't understand. So the outrage is kind of curious um, given the theory and given the um, realities of uh, inequality And history, and yet the reality that that sense of outrage and that sense of rights and that sense of something being lost and taken away is absolutely lived. And I want to switch from my um, uh, view of the self over uh, decades, if not centuries, to this morning. This morning, um, I was explaining to Alex I was wearing a pair of jeans because I was doing some field work with kids in a digital media learning centre. And I was watching them learning digital animation, and I thought, whoa, here are going to be the digital natives. I'm going to learn about digital animation. And it was a Mac world, of course, because everyone was very uh, with it. And these were young teens, uh, and they turned up on the Saturday morning to learn digital animation. They were enthusiastic. They were keen. I couldn't describe to you the kind of, or maybe I'll try briefly, the, the kind of frustrated morning I had, in listening to conversations like, hang on, where's my file gone? Where did you save it? Did you save it on the cloud? No, did you save it on that computer? Hang on a sec, which version were you looking for? Can you move it here? Why isn't this opening? Why is this taking so long to load? I've forgotten the password. Miss, what's the password? On and on. It's after an hour and a half, I thought, <laughs> at These people need to get organized. No. Um. So there's something puzzling. Um, The digital natives are not zooming ahead, understanding this world. Um, People are still very uh, materially located, struggling to come to terms with the sense of things changing, um, as as, um, uh, panelists have been um, talking about. And yet they are choosing this. They are choosing to spend their Saturday morning struggling with something quite frustrating and something quite difficult. We are choosing to put our information on Facebook, some of us, not all of us, some are leaving. Um, We are, um, and we need to ask kind of, we need to find a way to respect that choice. And the other thing that I see young people doing, because I spend a lot of time watching them, is... the the kind of effort to deal with the confusion, the effort to understand, which is really quite significant. There's a a hesitation, and I think um, we all share it, when we press upload or post or yes to the terms and conditions or um, uh, yes to please spread forward, do whatever. (laughs) There's a desire for it, um, there's a struggle to understand it, and there's an anxiety about it. And I think that kind of sense of more individualized choice, more um, enthusiastic and yet worried uh, sense of wanting to participate in a more digitalized community, yet uncertainty about how. So I don't see young people as um, savvy and I don't see them as trusting. I don't actually agree with um, Andrew, that people go online, discover their symptoms, and know what they've got. Actually, I think they're very anxious in that process. They're rather distrusting uh, in searching for the information, and they kind of know they don't know, but they don't know how else to uh, find out. And the reason they don't go to their GP is no one can get an appointment with their GP (laughs) anymore in this country. The offline world is still there, there's still buildings on streets, and it's as unequal, problematic, and inaccessible to us as it always was. The other thing, just one last thing I see um, worth spending time with young people is that they kind of want this world. They do spend their Saturday mornings trying to learn about it. They are confused and anxious and yet desirous. And at the same time, they are also making efforts to disconnect. And I think we are all variously kind of wising up and beginning to think, where is the moment when I'm going to pull back? Where is the moment when, yes, I'll put these pictures on Facebook, but I know that's not who I, am. I know that's only part of who I am. I know that's part of the game. There is also the other me, if you like, the one who, I don't know, goes for a walk or writes a poem or plays a football game or um, calls the mother. I don't know. There are lots of other things we do that are not online. It would be a bizarre world and it will be a bizarre world if those conducting and collecting the uh, algorithmic indicators Uh, think that that is exactly everything about who we are and if they're going to build a business model on it then good luck to them but uh, I wouldn't trust it myself and that's where I want to um, end my remarks really Um, what I'm trying to say is that there are people living offline and online navigating a different boundary wanting something because after all before we all walked around with our smartphones like this we walked around bored in our heads. I asked my students last week to spend a day without media uh, and it nearly killed them and most of them actually couldn't manage it. Um, And uh, they all posted, uh, what was it like? I didn't manage it either, let's let's be honest. Um, But they all um, had to write about the experience of trying to spend um, a day without media and one of the things that came out was that they were just bored. And I don't think that boredom is invented by the media. I think we used to be bored. Uh, And my memory of childhood is of acres of boredom, actually. Uh, boredom when um, I was waiting for uh, the test card. I'm sorry if I'm going back a bit far for some of you. The test card to give way to children's programming or bored uh, sitting in classes because I couldn't multitask and I couldn't do anything else. Bored walking home or coming home on the bus from school because I couldn't stare at my phone. Partly, we are embracing all of this tech because there were problems with what went before. Partly it is taking us into a world which we don't have much control over. But it is not exactly taking us there. We, as I think all the panellists have said, are taking us there. And we uh, retain some responsibility. So when the algorithm says this person 10 years ago uh, got used to get drunk and throw up in a, a pub... We will still have the decision, are we going to give this person a job? Are we going to be the people who think, oh my God, that is terrible. What a shocking person, I don't want them. Or are we going to think, yeah, sure, I probably threw up in a pub ten years ago too. That is the way it is. Uh, Goodness, no one, thank goodness no one. um, I didn't like throwing up before the digital age, so I'm lucky. We are the ones making that decision. We are not yet given up our identity to go and live in the matrix. We are still the people making the decisions about jobs, about university entrance, about who we want to have relationships with or fall in love with or have our children with and where we want to live. We are still here. Uh, and we, in that sense, still have some power, some responsibility. And it, it kind of worries me that much of this discourse is a sense of I, the little person, against the algorithm, the power of the society... We have always been the little person against the society, but the society, the larger unit, is not homogenous. The larger unit, which includes some very powerful companies whose fortunes might not be as secure as they hope, includes some very powerful companies. It also includes governments. It also includes a host of lawyers and international legal institutions. They have not yet abdicated from their roles. And so the key struggle, it seems to me, is not the little person against the big um, data cloud, but it is, as it always was, the struggles between um, state and commerce, between public and private, between the uh, authority or corruption of our various um, uh, uh, macro-level organisations and institutions. We need to keep an eye on that. We need to demand that its values stay transparent and accountable and democratic and inclusive and all the things that I think we would want to assert. Um, we might be pretty worried and pretty sceptical, but it won't just be takeover of the corporations. It will also be uh, the role of the citizens, the role of the governments, um, and the role of the larger societies to uh, keep those struggles um, uh, in check or keep that power in check. So, um, that's what I wanted to say. I don't think I can draw it to a grand conclusion, Um, but I did want to kind of draw attention to the motivations and interests of the people as they are engaging in this world, the struggles to understand and the importance of remembering those everyday struggles because we are not all swimming happily in the new sea of data and finding new possibilities. Uh, There are many, many problems. Uh, And um, the fact that in many ways these are old struggles about power and justice, not new struggles, or not only new struggles, about data and technology. Thank
1: you. We'll now now open the floor to questions from the audience. Uh, If you can let us know your name and affiliation, and wait for the stewards to come along with the microphone. Uh, and can I please ask to keep your questions brief? Uh, we'll take three at the start.
3: Hi folks, I'm Keith McDonald. I work at LSE in the Department of International Development. Um, thanks for a very entertaining panel. My question is about privacy. Um, I used to work on the history of privacy in the 17th century, where you get your first sort of mass integration from manuscript to print. And I find that privacy seems to form as a reaction to these new forms of public. And so in the last 20 years, when we've had the first sort of major paradigm shift since then, from print to screen, I wonder if you think that a similar process is happening that privacy in the new age is again starting to form in new ways from the new adaptation of the public sphere. Great.
1: And is there a question?
3: Thank you.
0: Um, Val Stevenson from The Pavement, which is a magazine for rough sweepers. Um, I was very interested in the, um, the idea of people who... Have an I- a digital identity which they have no role in forming. I mean, most of the discussion has been about people who are, well, were basically digital natives. We have at least had some <coughs> contribution towards the personality which appears online. Would you like to address the people who, for instance, um, have data collected about them which they may not actually want to have collected about them?
3: Hi, I'm Yujan. I'm an um, art history student at the Courtauld. And I was thinking about emoji and the kind of obsession with emoji everywhere now. There's kind of Washington Post um, articles written in emoji, there's people analyzing their psychological states for emoji, Moby Dick has been translated to emoji, all these different things. I was wondering if this is a um, a kind of anti-literary force in our culture? Are we going back to a time of hieroglyphics or a pre-literate stage? and Or is it just... Or it could be that and a kind of infantilizing force where we kind of want to see everything as this cute and, and a mini micro-identity and we're all becoming these kind of avatars. and Yeah.
1: Great, so we've got... Uh
5: Um, data collection as well. Such a great question. So many good questions. I will start with privacy, which is what I call it, sorry. <laughs> twenty years twenty years living here and it still hasn't been beaten out of me. Um, it's all right, it's all right, Sonia. Let's relate um, I I am I'd be really interested to find out more about the, the manuscript to print elements I think that's super super interesting and I think part of that has to do with something that we're experiencing now which is in many ways this sort of pervasiveness this idea of new publics becoming um, sort of emerging out of in the McLuhan sense of you know people being able to sort of look back and see um, where they have been on a kind of widespread scale and this aspect of going to the widespread I think is uh, is touches on something that Sonia Mentioned that I wanted to to raise. It's this. It's the idea that the widespread nature of the information that's out there. um, This this has been part of what has already existed with humanity, with the me, with the us, with the we, with the I. Right. We are expressing ourselves. Via this technology, in a in a sort of in a in what pers- what feels to be a very unfettered way, because we have lots and lots of different ways in which to express ourselves. Not everybody has a pause before they hit post or upload or whatever. Some people just go, yeah. and I've done that myself, you know, in the past. But I think what's really interesting psychologically and, and sociologically <coughs> is that because of the the glut. Of information that 's out there, we are able to see processes that previously were hidden because there is so much that 's out there so a lot of the the, the psychological research has had you know decades and decades about identity and decades and decades about community and the formations of both and um, not everybody has been party to that research and to that information but suddenly they're seeing communities of practice emerging when in fact people are saying hold on a second don't you need to be in a physical space together gathering together in a, in a, in a bricks and mortar for community to happen yeah. but in fact we're starting to see all of that um, in terms of identity expression and I- uh, identity development people are seeing the development of identity they're seeing identity markers that perhaps would have just not been recorded in the past because they were spoken or they, you know, they, they happened as you passed somebody walking down the street. Costume, you know, walking down the street, I can, if I, was a, if I was a fortune teller, I'd be able to make assumptions about you that would be able to, you know, that I'd be able to then tell you what your future is. But in the past, perhaps I can, <laughs> in the past, this would have gone unnoticed. It would have been the domain of the fortune teller and now suddenly the identity markers are present and pervasive. And that, I think, is the, is the, the issue when it comes to privacy—it's we aren't we aren't filtering in an adequate enough way. We're not forgetting in an adequate enough way, and it's out there and it's constant. So I think it, it, it would be really interesting to, to find out more about what it is that you found as a historian looking at that time. I don't know if anybody else wants to.
0: Can I um, come to the point um, about data collection beyond mm. our control? Um, Because I think that's um, a really significant question, a really interesting um, potential concern, and I do hope that um, the lawyer on my right and others have got a a solution in a minute. But um, I I, I just want to kind of retain the sense of um, material. Uh, individuals living on real streets, as it were. Um, we could say that the history of data collection about us has been going on since the history of modernity. We have been gradually improving our bureaucracies, our administration, our data records keeping, and it has always, in one sense, been kind of beyond our control. Many would say that much of that data collection has been to society's benefit. It's been how we have managed to understand processes of demography or epidemiology or planning and so forth. So what really bothers us about the t- sense the day that data is being collected beyond our control I think, is three things. One is it is identified to us in a unique way. It's not, as it were, just statistics, though often identity was collected before in ways we now would consider unethical or illegal. Um, One is that that data might be wrong, um, and I think we could probably be pretty confident that it has often been and will always be partially wrong, and we won't know which parts are wrong. And the the third and the the most interesting to me is that the decisions that follow from that data touch us at certain points, which might be the moments when we are vulnerable or the moments when we can't um, uh, seek redress. And that's where I think we really needed to say, what exactly are those decisions, who is taking them, and what processes of regulation or legislation or public scrutiny and accountability can we bring to bear for those moments when that data kind of comes back to touch us in some way, when we're falsely arrested or um, our insurance premium is raised or we're not given that job you know, what are those moments and then what are the protections that as a society we can put in place rather than as it were saying there's too much data and we shouldn't be collecting this data because it has, you know, has always had its, its benefits and it's a long history, we're not going to stop that so what do we want to change there, what do we want to control
1: Andrew, did you want to
4: come just, just very quickly, a couple of points, you know, um, where time is short. Um, I, I think the first thing about the, the, the public sphere, shall we say, and experience from publishing, is that if, if, you, if you think as a lawyer about what privacy is, it's the right to control the f- communication of information. And, and as you say correctly, when you have technologies that suddenly make a change in their methods of communication, it throws up big questions in terms of what privacy are. So the big debates in, in the legal system include print, include in particular CCTV in the 1980s and 1990s, and now include the digital. So it's very important. I think the idea of you know, the, the digital footprint of the person who does not control it themselves is very worrying. And of course, that's particularly what was worrying people in the post-Snowden environment, how much information about me has been gathered without my knowledge. And that's even as a sort of sentient adult, children, of course, are a whole different issue in terms of digital footprints. Created about them, uh, I'm not going to go through everything the law can and should do because that's another hour's lecture. Um, but it's very. But it can interesting. do something, right? It can, yeah. Good, I mean, it's very it. interesting. I mean, the way the European Union is approaching and has approached this is data protection law, which they often talk about as data privacy. But really, when you drill into it, it's not really about privacy. It's not about keeping mm. the data to yourself. It's about ensuring the people who have data about you mm. handle it and process it properly. It's oh. about ensuring it's accurate. It's up to Date, that the Uh processing systems are transparent, all the things that you were raising. And I think it's very interesting that that's the approach that's been taken. And I think it's the right approach, to be honest. Um, I think the other thing, just to say very quickly, is the big problem, of course, now is the amount of data. We're losing control Mm -hmm. of our identity Mm -hmm. because big data means tiny little bits of data in disparate places can now create an image of us. And Mm -hmm. that's to do with the fact that this current technology never forgets, unless we tell it to. And is very good at being able to to categorise data, and of course that's another big debate that certainly lawyers are having about the right to be forgotten mm-hmm. and whether that should be yeah. an important part of this sort of bundle of rights. But I know Luke was want to say some things around it, take up too much time.
3: Yeah, I was really interested to um, sort of touch on your 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 point about data being collected about people that they don't necessarily mm-hmm. want to be collected. And I th- j- j- just as sort of an aside, it's quite interesting. I don't know how many people have done this, but if you Google, there was an article out a, a couple of years ago with a link um, in it. And it, So if you Google um, what gender does Google think I am, you mm-hmm. can find a sort of, it's a fairly short profile, it's clearly not everything that Google knows about you, but it's quite interesting to get a sense of what Google thinks about you in terms of how old it predicts that you are, what it predicts are your main interests, where it predicts that you live, all of these different things. And it's interesting because you look at the list and in some ways you know it will be three quarters correct and you'll think wow that's actually pretty impressive and then you realize but what about the quarter that's wrong (laughs) as we increasingly rely on this data then that is the quarter that sort of matters um something i find really interesting i suppose is what happens to discrimination in an age of unknowability, I suppose, because one of the big buzzwords that you hear about technology is always this idea of transparency, but then we're talking about Silicon Valley, where algorithms are sort of guarded like missile codes, and there's so much kind of black boxing going on, referring to the idea that often even the people who are working on these algorithms don't exactly know how they work, and certainly for competitive reasons, uh, the, the, the public don't know how they um, work. I'm sort of fascinated, there was a really interesting uh, study done a few years ago by a, a professor at Harvard called Latanya Sweeney, who found that she, she was, uh, or she, she is an African-American uh, professor, and she realised that she was being targeted with ads basically sort of saying, you know, have you been in prison? It here, 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 will direct you towards a legal firm. And none of her white colleagues were being, and there was no reason why this should have been applied to her. And what was... Worked out was that Google's machine learning um, tools, which it uses for targeting adverts, were sort of being unknowingly racist by tap- by, by tapping into these large scale data sets, associating certain names with sort of certain types of behaviour. And I mean, that's for, and and you can sort of dig down there and ask whether that's Again, it would be easy to sort of say that that is somehow reflecting some kind of objective truth, but of course it's not. It's reflecting sort of large-scale societal bias hidden in sort of a a, a, a mass of data. But what I find interesting about discrimination, just to get back to that point, is the idea that increasingly the types of behaviour which have traditionally been marked out for discrimination, so if we're talking about age or if we're talking about race, or if we're talking about gender, these types of discrimination, they've not often been easy to unpick, but they've at least been categorizable in a sense. In, a day, in an age where there are so many different algorithmic markers and certain types of behaviour become associated with, for example... Um, sorry, I realise I'm not finishing any sentences there. It's because i to sort of work out... But, for example, it's interesting to think that if I was to visit a lot of rap music websites, then Google would classify me as, as, you know, black, which is kind of interesting. And so you could be discriminated against based on a physical marker which doesn't exist. So in that context, it becomes quite difficult to... I mean, if you, if you behave like a person over the age of 60 and you happen to be in your 20s, it becomes very difficult to sort of unpick that and to sort of say, you know, th- there's, there's ageism going on because you're not aware of exactly what's happening under the surface. So I kind of think that that's one of the most troubling aspects of this kind of... It's not necessarily data... It, 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 it's data being collected about us, but it's also sort of the, the algorithmic... Um, filtering of this information but can we
0: come back to who is going to discriminate I mean the algorithm might say you're black or white or whatever but who is going to do the discriminating because at that point it's an institution with resources and power that my hope is the lawyers will have some purchase over but I think that
3: we've constantly I mean it's interesting if you go back and you read People's responses to photography in the late 1800s. There was this belief that photography was superior to other forms of art because there was an objectivity to it. Because how could you possibly, how could you possibly, how could a photograph possibly not be objective? And of course, we realize now in an age of Photoshop or in an age of documentary film where we know that shooting someone from a certain angle tells us something different from shooting it at a different angle, but photography is in no way objective. But I still think we're so enthralled with of algorithms that often people are in a position where if, if, if a computer is suggesting a certain thing to them, they're not necessarily going to have the knowledge, they're not going to be in the position to say, actually I disagree that this decision is... You know, if you look at mortgages, I recently applied for a mortgage and there was clearly no one human who at any point was making the final decision. They were relying on a series of codified steps. And those codified steps do predate the digital age, but I think that they have become increasingly relied upon.
1: Right, well, I think we're going to have to wrap it up there, I'm afraid. We're time. But thank you so much to our speakers uh, for a fascinating discussion. Um,